want to go to there. Snipe! Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes, yes. 30 Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's a cunning plan, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, put hearts, keep Hello and welcome to the Televerse Sound Unsights TV podcast. This is Kate Kalsik and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Simon, how's it going? Well, you know, someone on Twitter today accused me of going soft thanks to you. Did you see that? No, I'm intrigued. No, I, I, I made a comment about that I'd had overall a, a more enjoyable TV year than film year and someone was like, you're going soft, bro. It's Katie's fault. That's almost <laughs> verbatim what they said. <laughs> Well, it's it's not uh, it's not my fault that it's been an amazing year of television. That's pretty much what I said. I mean, damn, it's it's been good. We started our pondering at Sound on Sight about the end of the year lists and best episodes, best shows. It's gonna just crack my brain in half trying to. Or how do you order between like the five or six masterpiece kind of seasons that we've experienced this year? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there were that many masterpiece seasons, but there were there there were a lot of excellent shows doing a lot of excellent things that were so different from each other. I hate I actually already went into a separate rant on this week's Sound on Sight podcast about how I hate ranking stuff that has nothing to do with each other. Uh huh. It's just it's so silly to me. It only really makes sense for me with music because a lot of the music I listen to has a lot in common with the other music I listen to. But TV, it's so disparate, <laughs> even just in terms of the modes of production, etc. It's just how do you uh, I hate lists. <laughs> yeah, but compare Justified and Spartacus and The Good Wife. Yeah, just there. Even just there. And they're all dramas, too, which makes it well, a little kind, easier. Kind of. Loosely speaking. Roughly. Anyways. But yeah. More to come with that at, at the end of the year. We're we're looking forward to our, our two-part podcast, 2013 Extravaganza, that we'll be doing uh let us know if, if there's a particular category you would like included in our 2013 blowout. Let us know. Previous favorites, what best uh, best dance sequence, best quotes. I feel like best quotes, I feel like we're gonna yeah. need best death. Best death. Um, I feel like we need we need. I, I mean, overrated is, is always fun because yeah, it's always fun to talk about how other people are wrong. <laughs> the Ringer Award for show I watched for way too long. I think we already know the winner for that one. I got to ponder back, though. There, I watched some stuff at the beginning of the year that I kind of can't believe that I did. Uh, but yeah, anyway, so that's going to be fun. So if you have uh, thoughts on that, let us let us know. We did hear from a bunch of you guys this week. We heard from Carl, who says that Better Off Ted is his pick for a uh, show that he doesn't know why it didn't catch on. That was one that I was very grateful to catch up with on the DVD shelf. And he also wants us to DVD shelf uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000. I would be all for that. Uh, that would, I have... <laughs> Honestly, I have mixed feelings about Mystery Science Theater. Well, <laughs> And I we could honest? discuss them. That's why I think it would yeah. be interesting. I just... I, I don't know. Uh, maybe if I watch it, like more of it, I'll change my my mind. But I kind of feel like people should be doing their own riffing, you know? Don't let other people do do the searching for you and tell you what's funny about stuff. You know, watch Mano's Hands of Fate for real. And, you know, 
do it with your buddies and some drinks. I think that's more fun. No, no one know. should watch Man of Sands of Fate for real. <laughs> Come on. No. Should no. No. I've only seen the Mystery Science Theater once, and I kind of felt like even that wasn't a, an effective use of my time. You're doing it wrong, America. Apparently. As always. Apparently. As always. <laughs> Keith says he's really loving Ground Floor every episode. He likes the show more, so maybe I should tune back into that one. Mario enjoyed our, our talk about Grimm last week, and he agrees with me. This is good characters that are not wasting our time and, because they're a blue bod investment to get uh, rather than bullshit romantic drama. And we'll talk a little bit more about Grimm later in the show. I threw it out to Twitter. What are the best episodes of the year? Got some interesting and, and entertaining responses. Zach votes for The Ghost is Seen on Enlightened. And Kyle says, Hating the Fan from Good Wife and Variations Under Domestication Orphan Black. Shannon votes for Reigns of Castamere and Game of Thrones. Richard votes, among others, for One Man's Trash from Girls and Dreamscapers, Dreamscaperers sorry, and Gideon Rises from Gravity Falls. Kevin votes for Safe House on The Americans and The Crash from Mad Men. Willow votes for Simon and Marcy from Adventure Time. Sean votes for Bora Bora Bora, Orange is the New Black. Dead Mans from The Wrong Mans. The Day of the Doctor from Doctor Who and Fringe is an Enemy of Fate. Fringe happened this year, guys. Oh my god, it's been a long year. It has. Any of those stand out? Some of those will be appearing on our Best Episodes of the Year lists, and some will yeah, not. probably not Fringe. Yeah, sorry. We love Fringe, but we, we did not like that episode. Yeah, not not particularly. Was that, was that the finale? I want to say that was the finale. Yeah, no, not so much. Yeah. Um, it talked grim with JD, Alana, Ken, and Mario. We, of course, talked a bunch about the Amazing Race Pool. Our winner is Dan, who, of course, used to, to cover the show for us, so he's very well-versed in the Amazing Race. Though Mario made it a, a tough call. Dan only squeaked out the win by a few points. We'll talk about that later in the show. Um, Augustine wrote a comment and said, Yes, a Freakazoid episode. Thank you. We're glad you enjoyed our discussion of Freakazoid. He says a keynote that wasn't mentioned in your discussion of Freakazoid is the name Tom Ruger Rager, who created Tiny Toons, Animaniacs, Pinky and the Brain, and many other shows on Kids WB. He didn't create Freakazoid, but he was put in charge of it by Spielberg. Originally, Bruce Tim and Paul Dini were in charge, and they planned a more serious tone for the from the show from the get go. That is until Sp Spielberg had Ruger take over the show and bring his comedic approach. It's a shame Rager does, hasn't done anything significant after Kids WB died out with his portfolio. I'm surprised he doesn't get an offer for an animated feature. Any thoughts? Um, that's interesting. I can't imagine Freakazoid not being completely silly. Yeah, so that, I, I'm sort of intrigued by what else the show could have been with with a, with a more, you know, maybe more Batman the Animated Series kind of approach with, with that Paul Dini collection. I mostly just think, no. No. <laughs> no. Don't do that. I'm sure when we eventually get to Animaniacs, Pinky and the Brain, or Tiny Toons, some of these other shows on the DVD shelf, I imagine we'll talk more about his contributions. But yeah, that's a good point. Thank you for the heads up. Much appreciated, Augustine. Glad you enjoyed the segment. Of course, this week we'll be talking about The Office UK. We talked with Scott Mesla from The Week, and that was a lot of fun. That'll be at the end of the podcast. But for now, let's get into our week in TV. And it shines within the darkness of the sands of time. A family time. There's a fight. But the battle to be won is with the man inside. A man inside. No valley, no ocean can stop. 
This week in comedy, we have Trophy Wife, Russ Bradley Morrison, The Mindy Project, Christmas Party Sex Trap, Key and Peele, The Power of Wings, and Bob's Burgers, Bob and Deliver. Uh, so you checked in with Trophy Wife. Yeah, I checked back in with Trophy Wife because I'd heard a lot of good things about it, and I did kind of like the pilot. But, you know, I feel like Trophy Wife belongs in that unfortunately common category for me of network sitcoms that feature a lot of people I think are funny, doing a lot of things that intellectually I understand why they think that we think it's funny. But mostly I just find it cute. I don't think I laughed out loud once over the course of the episode. And I think it's also a casualty of sort of the family sitcom where half the characters are under 15. And so, of course, they have to come up with things for them to do. And those are mostly cute and not funny, despite the best efforts of the kids who are, you know, very good at what they're doing, but it's not really my cup of tea. And it's really too bad because I love Malin Ackerman and Bradley Whitford and Marcia Gay Harden, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't know. I don't get what it is that other adults are seeing in it that I'm not. Interesting. I'll uh, I'll see if I can check in this week. Was this? I think they have one more episode, right, before they go on hiatus? I think so, yes. So I'll see if I can check in. It's a bit of a lighter week, but that that's a common issue of, of cute instead of funny. I, I feel like that's sort of almost universally applicable to me for family comedies. That, you know, early modern family kind of got around that when it just, you know, managed to have a really great joke rate. But other than that, it's pretty damn rare. Okay. Um, I'll talk about Mindy Project briefly. This was Christmas Party Sex Trap. And it, I enjoyed the episode. I liked that they brought back Danny's thing with gingerbread houses. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Again, I've said this before. When they do the Danny Mindy stuff, it works really well. And then they pull back from it. And pretty soon, they've done a good job of not making Danny pathetic in liking her when she doesn't like him. Because that's something that I think a lot of these shows turn... They turn one of the two into, like, this piner and who's completely defined by a relationship that doesn't actually exist. And that that's a, it's a big issue with the will-they-won't-they couples. Jim was that forever, right, on The Office U.S. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, plenty of other examples. Nick was quite a while on, uh, on New Girl before they got the couple together. And for some reason, it's like, it has to be the guy who's the piner, because if the girl's the piner, then it's creepy or something. Like, it's not creepy if it's the guy. I don't know. So they've done a good job with, with actually making those two friends most of the time. And every now and again, they tease the coupling. But if they're going to have them get together, I need them to do it. So either, you know, because every time they have them almost get together, but then something else happens, when they don't have both characters have something else happen, it, it turns it into a very unequal friendship or relationship or something. And so, you know, that's that's where I'm at with, with that. But I did enjoy most of the holiday sort of shenanigans. I'm enjoying that they still have Glenn Howerton on. Uh, he's been a fun addition. He works well with Mindy and uh, has been one of the better you know, love interest guest stars. So we'll see where that goes. But, uh, but yeah, I'm still enjoying Mindy project. Uh, if it's, if I'm not quite bowled over key and peel, the power of wings. <laughs> uh, that's a mental image for you. I think it was, a, I think it was about middle of the pack for key and peel. Uh, a couple of sketches that really landed some that really didn't. The Arabic gym guys. Yeah. Are never funny to me. And that sketch just seemed to drone on and on. Yeah. And on and on. And on, see how I'm doing it too long? That's what the sketch felt like. It doesn't come back around, guys. Most yeah, most no. of the time when you do that, it doesn't come back around. Yeah. On on the other hand, the pawn shop sketch, which really was also one joke, I think managed to find the right balance of time and effort. 
Yeah, well, and also just the, the again, the timing of it, the, you know, the response from, from Jordan, I want to say. Yeah. Was 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 uh was just perfectly underplayed and just that 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 tagline of sir it's April uh, was was just wonderful and again this is the the right episode to put that 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 sketch in you know right before Christmas for us so I I really enjoyed that that sketch I also really enjoyed the opening one the back and forth with uh, Janet Varney and Natasha Legero yes it's obvious joke but I thought that the reaction shots with Key and Peel worked pretty well in there uh, what did you think of the music video I confess that I didn't get the budget thing immediately I thought maybe <laughs> it was like. Some I, I really overthought it, which is what happens to me with comedy sometimes, where I overthink the basic premise, and so I, I miss the obvious, the much more obvious jokes. I thought, is that like a Kickstarter thing, and they're losing and gaining funds? But uh, I mean, the, the certainly the imagery won't leave my mind for a while. <laughs> yeah, just like trying to get on the horse, and then you're just walking with the horse, and then the next time you see the horse, it's clearly a different guy in that costume. Some of those those uh, bits really work for me. And when it, they run out of money, and it's just him in his backyard, basically being the Star Wars kid, that 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 works for me. <laughs> I gotta say. Uh, let's see what else. I feel like there was one other one that I wanted to mention. The British. Yes, British thug. British thugs. Uh, what did? You, yeah, that 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 definitely. Definitely worked for me. That had a nice sense of specificity to it, and I'm sure was meant specifically to recall Idris Elba on The Wire, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I hadn't made that connection, but that absolutely makes sense. And the um, just the the whole discussion of of British actors cast as as Americans that that joke was very suited towards my comedic sensibilities um let's move on to our final one though bob's burgers bob and deliver they I, we kind of complained a little bit last week and then they this episode was so much better and there was no song and there was no song that certainly helped yeah, they threatened one but it didn't happen so yes i feel like every animated sitcom eventually has to do an inspirational teacher parody mm -hmm. or actually just every sitcom ever it's such a well-worn trope so it's always worrisome to see a show as inventive as bob's kind of take on something that familiar but i thought it was done with a plum uh, it was funny front to back. Again, the no song was. A, I can't stress enough how much that was a huge benefit. And I really love Zeke. I think he's a great sort of occasional supporting character to throw in, M much like the sort of the way The Simpsons built up a great repertoire of use them on occasion but don't overdo it characters. I think they've got a nice balance with that. Definitely, and I also enjoyed the whole dirty dancing thing that, for the most part, worked for me as well. So, just the it, it, was, it was a good episode. What wins your week in comedy? I'll give it to Bob's. Uh, yeah, I'll give it to Bob's too. Bob's with the with a nod of the the, a, the a hat dash of key and peel. to Key and Peel. Yeah, yeah. Well, right. Now we'll take a break and come back with our week in reality. Snowman, 
this week in reality, we have a bit of a catch up with The Voice, Top Chef, Restaurant Wars, The Amazing Race, Amazing Crazy Race. And as you heard lead, with our music leading to this, we're going to talk a little bit about the sound of music. Yes, it's a drama, but let's be honest, we were all watching that as let's see if they manage to survive a live show, right? That, that's, so this feels much more like a reality kind of thing to me. Um, I'm going to start with The Voice. I did not catch all of last night's episode, but it was only an hour. I caught most of it. And I figured I'd kind of chime in. Um, at this point, I, there's only five singers left. They're going to cut two this week. I was underwhelmed by pretty much everybody this week. There were some good songs and there's some good uh, strong vocals, but they've pretty much all settled into this is the thing they do. Um, the five contestants that are left. And so when you have Jackie singing Angel, but turning it into an overwrought emotional power ballad, it's like, okay, I understand that you can do this. You know, the 16-year-old, and it makes sense with Christina too, but look at what you're singing. Look at what this song is supposed to be about and tell me why you're cranking it to 11 and just kind of being screechy even if you're in tune. Nothing about this song, you know, warrants that. And so why are you doing it? It was very distracting. Bridge Over Troubled Water, yes, Tessan held that last note forever, but it was sort of an awkward transition to, to, to end the piece. And as, you know, we were talking about this earlier, Bridge Over Troubled Water, it's a really hard song. You don't get to... Be- like a bridge over troubled water, I will. you don't get to breathe, like, anywhere in those really long phrases. So it's hard to do, but... It's a song everybody's done, right? Do they? I don't know. It's I, been covered a lot. I mean, I know, like, yeah, that obviously in the 70s it was omnipresent, probably the early 80s as well, but I haven't heard a new version of it in easily 20 years. Well, and if you listen to the, the one from last night, you won't have heard a new version either, because there's only one version of Bridge Over Troubled Waters. Either you do it well, or you just kind of get through it. But, I mean, that you're not going to wow me with that song. You're just going to go, yep. It's a hard song, and you sang it, and that's as 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 close as I get to being excited about it. The other people were tended to be out of tune, um, so I wasn't particularly overwhelmed by any of them. But they need to change things up. Of course, on the voice, if you change things up, you get voted off. So that's why they haven't been. It's a whole thing. Anyways, the sound of music. I figured I'd give just a few thoughts. You, you those all the scenes where they have the actual, like Broadway trained and experienced singers singing are much better than the ones where they have the leads who don't have that experience. Okay, so you have Audrey McDonald as the the head abbess, right, Mother Superior, which her voice was way too wide and her vibrato did... She's a fantastic, amazing actress and singer, but her voice and the way she was singing does not match any of the other nuns, and so it was very distracting. But, but, but still, she had a really nice tone, and you put her next to Laura Berlanti also... Broadway trained and experienced and Christian Borel, same thing. And then you put them next to Carrie Underwood. I've never heard so many R's in my entire life. You mean like the pirate sound? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, she's her opening song, right? She's on the hillside or whatever in the studio, but she's on the hillside. And she just, she sounds so just stereotypically like, country singer American and that's you know you shouldn't be surprised when you get that when you cast Carrie Underwood because that's what she does and that's fine she's she's a very talented singer but when you put that next to this this much uh rounder kind of sound that you're getting of the vocals like the just the pronunciation of all the vocal of all the vowels sorry I should say 
from from all of your best singers and you put her next to it she doesn't match and it just really made her seem out of her element the character is supposed to be from the same place everyone else is i was gonna say country maybe not the most appropriate for the setting and tone of the sound of music exactly and so it was just it was very it was very strange and also she doesn't have that experience of of how you play these these emotions and these lines and so just the ease of 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 especially Laura Blanty and and Christian Borel up there because they would would share scenes with her and Stephen Moyer, uh, and it just there was no comparison. The, the 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 first two were so much more at ease in that live experience. Um, it's a, it was just sort of odd to me. Did you catch any of this? Hell no. But I didn't have it. I mean, I didn't even know about the cast other than Underwood. I had no idea that Moyer even had a musical theater-y background at all. Yeah, and he was fine, but he he doesn't have any breath support. And granted, that character doesn't have to sing a lot. But it was when they did have him sing, if you're going to have him sing, he needs to sound really good. Uh, because it needs to be like, she's awakening this music within him and, you know, and all that. And that needs to be their connection. And that didn't happen. And so it just was sort of awkward and i don't know i I don't know how it did in the ratings did you hear much buzz about it i was working while it was airing I, apparently a lot of people watched it so i'm assuming we can look forward to more live specials of other musicals being quasi butchered i heard it was the first live musical on network tv since the 50s that's kind of impressive i'll say that yeah it kind of is i mean it's a feat to put together that production on you know live tv that they a lot of work went into that i just would not have cast carrie underwood on it uh i don't think anybody was watching for her well and how about maybe do a musical that doesn't already have a definitive cinematic adaptation yeah i don't understand someone's like i'm gonna watch on my tv not live i'm gonna it is a live production but i'm not gonna be in the theater watching it i'm gonna watch it on my tv i'll watch this one instead of the julie andrews version what musical would you like to see them attempt to do live on network tv uh Sweeney Todd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, watching what, how they would mangle that to make it network TV appropriate would be. I don't know, it, it would, or it would be fun to like watch them try to do like a like a super like any other like super technical Sondheim show that no one knows about just for fun, like Sunday in the Park with George or something. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Bring Patinkin back. <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably he doesn't have the stamina anymore. It, I, yeah, he doesn't quite have that same breath control and uh, support that that you need. It was an interesting thing. Uh, I did, you know, I checked it out, but you, I, I just can't get past the all the R's in all the vowels for Carrie Underwood and Adel, Edelweiss is one of my favorite songs in all of musical theater. So I was underwhelmed by Moyer as well, but it, it could have been a lot worse. Let's be honest. Um, let's move on to Top Chef Restaurant Wars. Uh, you watched this one and then kept kind of poking me to see if I'd watched it yet. I take it this was giving you uh, flashbacks. Oh God, this was stressful. I, it was again like we always re- return to the issue of editing on TV and whether or not we were getting an honest picture of someone before or if we're not getting it now. And it's hard to say with Justin because it seems like he was so solid for so long, and then over the last couple of weeks he's just kind of had a gradual meltdown, which culminated in this shit show. Which I don't know. I had to almost look away sometimes because it was just so hard to bear. I thought his teammates did a good job of keeping an even keel. That would not necessarily have happened with all of the chefs who are there, but like Nina well, not and... not all of his teammates. Uh, yes, all the teammates in the kitchen, yes. shall we say. But Sarah, man, that was... 
It was not cool. She should have been such a good front of house. Like when she was she talking my around, choice too. She was doing a good job. She just clearly was not a hundred percent there. And I and I enjoyed that they didn't necessarily highlight this as much as I think they could have. But the other team, they said it was the best front of house they've ever had on Restaurant Wars. So it was like a perfect nightmare. Yeah, the, the, the compare contrast was was distinct. Yeah, Travis was absolutely killing it at front of house, which is interesting because he he always seems nervous. Yeah, and like always seems to be teetering on the on the edge. So I was surprised that he was so good, whereas I was expecting great things from Sarah, who seems to be all about presentation. And yeah, that was. Whoo! Some of the food looked good, though. Some of it looked good. Some of it, like, Justin's actual dish looked horrible. That was the lamb thing that nobody liked. Yes, yes, that, you're right. That didn't look particularly appetizing. And I'm sorry, but you're going to make a mascarpone cream and you're not going to keep it on ice? I mean, I do that in my home kitchen if I'm using whipped cream or something. If the oven's on and it's going to be next to it, I mean, that's just, that's going to happen. So I don't know. I feel like she should know better. That seems to be a trend on Top Chef this year is no one knows how to use ice. Yeah. Anyways, any other thoughts on Restaurant Wars? Were you surprised they did it with 10 instead of with 8? Um, not really. I thought it was fine. I, I mean, it that clearly wasn't anybody's issue. But And mm. I honestly wasn't that surprised to see Sarah go home instead of Justin because that really was just... Yeah. Oh, that was just a poor showing all around. But she only explained her dish... And that I, was the death knell for sure. I just kind of assumed that they told them, by the way, make sure you explain everybody's dishes because everyone else in the in, in the run of Restaurant Wars Forever always has. And so... Yeah. Also, offended Padma is my favorite Padma. <laughs> yeah, that's true. She, that, was, that was pretty great. Uh, let's move on to, though, The Amazing Race, Amazing Crazy Race, and Jason and Amy are our winners. I was happy with that. I, I mean, I would have been happier if I'd voted for them, but yeah. I was definitely happier with that with, what the hell, Nicole and Travis? You were so likable a few weeks ago. Well, yeah, and, and Nicole obviously is less likable because she was making stupid mistakes, but Travis was being an asshole. So I couldn't yeah, even root for him. Travis was, Travis was not helping things. No. Which, uh, like, I, I, like, I don't think I've ever felt more awkward in the history of Amazing Race than when they get to the end. And 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 they're asked, so what do you want your kids to think about when you when they watch this? And they're like, um, we want them to know never to give up. And I and I'd be like, no, we want them to know that we're never gonna do treat each other like that again because that was shameful. Yeah, well, I mean, and Nicole didn't respond in the way that so many of these couples do. The one you know gets testy, and then they just it sort of escalates. And she just shut down and didn't respond, so they didn't make that arguing worse. But, I mean, that, that neat, I mean, I can't imagine that you're having a terrible time. I mean, that, so much of that, um, flower thing seemed like it was just kind of luck that you're, you're gonna just make her feel like crap about that. And you know, you, in, in that helicopter right after, you could see him being like, she's like looking at him trying to get like a, we'll figure it out together kind of a thing. And he's just like, no, I know that that's what you're looking for, but I'm not going to give that to you. Yeah, their whole season was like watching a really boring but also hard-to-watch psychodrama just playing out in slow motion. So in retrospect, I should have honored my usual thing of not voting for couples, but then I would have not voted for Jason and Amy, so... 
And Amy go. helped out Nicole twice, and she can say what she wants. I don't think she helped her out so that there would be a weaker team going into the final three. I think she helped her out because she's a nice person. Yeah, and I think the nice thing about that is I wasn't annoyed with Jason when he was like, come on. Like, I probably would have been saying that too. Like, okay, you've got enough. Can we go now? Like, I would have been mm -hmm. him. So I, I, didn't, I didn't think he was being a jerk. I thought he was just being a good competitor. But, uh, yeah, they proved themselves to be, you know, a, a great team. Like they said, you know, all the second place finishes, I think, helped them stay under the radar. But I, I have to say that by, by the end, I would have actually been happier having the Afghanimals in the top three than having Nicole and Travis because they were so unpleasant to watch. And the Afghanimals were actually running a really good race. They were running a really good race. Um, but I'm sorry, but the folding the clothes back was kind of genius. That that was a good play. That was a good. That was definitely a good play. I just they're so hugely annoying. I just they're, oh, I, they're super obnoxious. But I had to give. But I had to give them credit. For, yes, you know they had a speed bump in that second. If they hadn't been for that, I'm sure they would have been in the in the in the top three. Yes. Well, yeah. Then that speed bump was just stupid. They need to redesign their speed bumps because I mean, come on. Yeah, I couldn't figure out the logic of that speed bump. Yeah. Anyways, we should mention that Dan, of course, won. He had 152 points. I had 87. I had 57. I actually vaulted to seventh, so I feel pretty good about that. Well, and I think we can all feel good that Mandy, who actually had to drop out and never made a single pick, just went with the default picks the whole time, had was in last place. Which is so, just, yes. Everybody managed to beat if you hadn't done any picks. So <laughs> Yes. Which for a while um, I was beneath that that barrier, so I was glad. Yeah, and I uh, I was just I honestly, were you alone, or rather was I alone in kind of rooting for Tim and Marie a little bit near the end there because they were doing well and I enjoyed them. I enjoyed their dynamic. Were you surprised? I couldn't believe that sixty forty split thing. Wow. Oh, well, it, it kind of makes sense, a because I totally imagine him as just being like, I do not want to have an argument about this with you. Yeah. Like, A, that makes sense to me. B, the fact that she did all the arrangements for actually getting on the show and he was only on it because he was apparently the next person in the room <laughs> <laughs> was priceless. So, yeah, that does kind of make sense to me. I I don't know. It's They, they did a great job with, like, when we're watching a show like this, we're naturally going to think, ah, but... You know they're they're playing together. We we they must secretly want to be, and they're like, no, we got two trips. We're going to do those separately. <laughs> well, and uh, I mean, I thought it was actually really interesting to watch their reactions to things, uh, and you know, have it come out that that she broke up with him, and you can see certain elements in in the way that they're interacting. We, at the end, when she's like, yeah, of course, of course, in a friend way, we love each other, and he's just like awkwardly on the side, being like. Oh. Uh, no. Uh, if I had broken up with you, we wouldn't be friends anymore. Kind of a thing. Like, that's the sense <laughs> I got from them. So I thought that was actually pretty interesting. Uh, they were going to be on next season's, um, originally they were slated to be on next season's, uh, like, Unfinished Business, I think is what it's called, where they have returning teams, but then something is changed up. And I don't want to say who from this season is actually going to be on it, but there are a few who will be who I'm very excited about and a few that I'm really dreading. I wanted to mention though, uh thank you for reminding me earlier, the there was a great article up at The Onion. Yes, they interviewed Abba of James and Abba about his experience on the show and to his credit, he spends about three quarters of it's a very long interview, very it goes into a lot of de detail. They spend about three quarters of it just talking about what it is to be on the amazing race and what are the fiscal and practical realities of it. 
from audition from you know some sort of submitting yourself or you know whatever to um and you know wh- whether you submit yourself or whether you're actually cast which is two totally different processes um on you know to the actual race itself to what you can expect financially especially if you don't win or you know and you know the sort of the value of the prizes and injuries and all this other stuff and then of course in the last quarter he goes on into more detail about all the things that went wrong specifically on their race Mm-hmm. And I feel like if it had been any anybody else, I kind of would have been like, okay, you're just big upping yourself because you want to be on the next one. But from him, I kind of buy it. He had two broken legs. <laughs> two broken legs. Holy crap. Because <laughs> I remember him kind of like limping around. I was like, oh, you know, he screwed up his, his ankle or, you know, tw- you know, twist his knee or something. That guy was competing with one broken leg for a couple weeks, for like a week, right? Maybe yeah. several days at least. And then he broke the other one. And he didn't realize he competing. that he had broken either, and he didn't bitch about it once. He's like, "Yeah, it hurts. It's kind of sore, but you know, we're doing our best." Are you are you kidding me? Nine months between casts and uh, then and then physical therapy, and he's still like, yeah. "I'll go back on in a heartbeat." Oh. And their cab, and they got their wallet stolen by a gypsy cab. Yeah, and one of their dads was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, yeah. And again, no bitching, no tears. Yeah, if I wish they were on the next season, they're not. If they don't rate for, they're not seriously. Yeah. Oh, maybe they'll do another one. Yeah, they will in a few, few, a uh, couple years probably. I would love to have James Napa back on. I feel like they should wait a couple years just to make sure his legs are okay. <laughs> I mean, can you can you believe that? That is insane. That was insane. crazy. But also just the fact that I, cause I always assume that people who appear on these shows are like pretty decently compensated, even if they don't win. Apparently not nope. the case with the amazing race, at least. Nope. Well, that's, and I've heard that for, for, you know, these other shows too. If, if you don't win, you're not, you know, cause they, they don't necessarily fly you out to LA. They don't necessarily cover all these different expenses. So, I mean, you're, it's a steal for what you get for your vacation going all over the world. You know, that's, it's an amazing, you know, amount of money to pay if you, if you're able to, but you're also missing a lot of work. And yeah. And, and just the thing of how much, like you have to call your job and be like, so how long will you be gone? I don't know. Where are you going? <laughs> I can't tell you. I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Okay. Well, what wins your week in reality? Uh, I'll actually just just for not making me sit through the Nicole and Travis psychodrama, I'll give it to Top Chef. Um, I'll give it to the Amazing Race. I enjoyed the season. Uh, I would have liked to have done better on the on the pole on the, on the pool, but it wasn't so bad. Not it, it could have been certainly could have been worse. And tip of the hat to Dan. Dan, uh, please send me your contact information, and we'll get you the Televerse traveling gnome. You're the the prize. You will be the keeper of the gnome until the next Amazing Race pool. And uh, its name is Klaus Nomi. Let's not forget. Okay, we'll take a break and come back with our weekend drama. You give your hand to me And then you say hello And I can hardly speak My heart is beating so Know me. No, you don't know the one 
drama we have mob city guy walks into a bar and reason to kill a man treme this city and masters of sex phallic victories let's start with mob city what did you think of this premiere and did you watch both episodes or just the first you know i came in expecting to watch only one because i had such low expectations but i actually ended up watching both because i actually thought it was reasonably entertaining i do have one caveat however i heard so much about how good looking the show is and i'll admit it's it's a handsome series, you know, it, it does sort of what we expect from high-end TV period pieces. But I do wish that at some point, someone who makes a period piece on TV is going to have the balls to really go all in and make it look like a 1940s or 1950s production. Which I know is not the point, they're trying, but like, you know, they're trying to present this like halfway point between realism and noir, but... Seriously, if you're going to do a TV noir, why not do it in a different aspect ratio? Why not do it in black and white? Why not, you know, really look at your digital cinematography and see what you can do to age it? Like, go all out. You can probably actually save money that way. (laughs) But anyway, like, seriously, why not? I bet people would fall for that. I mean, I would enjoy it, but I've learned to to not gauge other people's reaction to, say, black and white based on mine. Because I go, yay, and other people are confused and think their TV's broken. I don't know. and I, I, But I, I was actually doubly surprised that Frank Darabont didn't try it since That's he true. was the last person to experiment with black and white television, albeit on DVD. But whatever. Anyway. How, um, what did you think of the, the story, the cast, the writing? I thought it was fun. I enjoyed it. I watched both of them, too. Yeah, I mean... I, I read, uh, I think it was Todd Vanderwerf was complaining about how characters were behaving certain ways only to preserve a mystery and not because yes. of how they would behave. Yes. And, I mean, that's noir. Have <laughs> 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 you, like, watch, like, you know, the Maltese Falcon or something. That's not how people behave either, but it's but it's a good time to watch. And I, I don't think that, I think that the writing is a, a couple steps below what it should be in terms of the patter. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's quite there, but... I think when you when you have people who are talented enough, for instance, you know, Simon Pegg in that first episode, which they did a great job not announcing that to anyone. So good yeah. job. Uh, I think he's really good. I've never heard him do an American accent before. No, he's and... really good. And I've never really seen him be dramatic in like straight up drama as opposed to a dramatic moment in a in a comedic thing. I thought he did a really good job. I want to see him in more. Yeah, and he was great in that period setting even, which was doubly surprising. Yeah. And uh, so when you have, like, really great actors handling it, they do a better job. But still, I feel like the writing needs to be punched up. I thought uh, John Bernthal uh, was also quite good. I think he he fits the, the, the noir mold really well. I always thought he was one of the best actors on The Walking Dead, and it was a shame when they got rid of him. Uh, but, you know, not a surprise to see him reunited with Darabont here. Also, I was wondering where I'd seen the femme fatale before, the dame, played An by Angel? Alexa Ballos. On She had a very thankless role for several, uh, <laughs> thankless recurring role on Angel, so it was nice to see her land somewhere else. Well, it's like either that or you remember from, what, Chronicles of Riddick? So I do. I never saw it. <laughs> no, it was nice to see her back, and she was really good. Uh, I, I, John Berthel, I had issues with him on on 
on Walking Dead, but that was always the writing of the character, not really the performance. It's great to see Neil McDonough. I need more Neil McDonough in my life. One of these days we'll do Boomtown on the DVD shelf, and I'll get to sing his praises. But uh, Jeffrey DeMunn, also a lot of fun. Milo Ventimiglia, we're supposed to believe he was a Marine. Yeah, I, I can see that being an issue. I believe John Bernthal's a Marine. I do not believe for a second that he was a Marine. Yeah, my only casting problem really is Edward Burns because I can't shake the oh feeling my that God. he's the most boring jerk on the face of the earth. <laughs> he's the least Jewish uh, Jewish mobster ever. I that didn't even occur to me, but yes, I just I can never get over the fact that he's a black hole of charisma. But anyway, I I like Ed Burns, but I don't believe him as this character for a moment. Uh, yeah. Which is too bad because I want to like him because I've liked you know I've liked him in many things but yeah I certainly don't see him and think this is Bugsy Siegel. Yeah, um, I mean he was a good get for them in terms of recognizability, but I agree it's not fantastic casting. The but yeah the whole issue of whether or not you know people are being unnecessarily withholding to have a mystery I it never felt like a mystery to me like it felt pretty obvious that they had a prior relationship just based on the blocking and and you know sort of the the really restrictive dialogue. I mean, that couldn't have been just me. Well, yeah, I mean, it's clear that we're supposed to know they do. I mean, that didn't seem like we, we know that some kind of a relationship based on the, just how they frame. I did it for love, you know, with, with why, you know, and he recognizes the, the film. And then we later see her destroying film. So we know it's this one particular brand of film or whatever that, that is very uncommon there. So that's how he knows it must be her. And, the name and everything. Um, and so when you tie that, that in, I, I just, you know, I do think that when they're alone in the car, it's a bit much that they're still trying to pretend. Yeah, fair enough. You know, the, the station house that, that I had Being no problem watched, with that. Yeah. yeah. It was just that scene where you're just like, go, go, come on. Go. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I agree. It's, it's a fun series. I mean, it could, the main plot be traveling at maybe a slightly better clip. Yeah, probably. Uh, actually definitely <laughs> but it was um, fun yeah i i it was i was shocked that i watched both hours so good for you tnt and frank darabont i'm gonna watch the next two are you gonna watch the next two probably and i'm I, i'm you know there's all this talk of this is like the definition of a december burnoff, which mm-hmm. clearly scheduling wise it is but i hope that doesn't mean the tnt is giving up on it right away yeah, we'll see what what uh, the numbers are for it in the next couple of weeks. But it's nice to have some new programming in December because it's Mob City and Treme are it for. Yeah. Uh, and I actually think that airing it as a two hour block is kind of like I know it's not the way they intended it, but it is kind of smart because yeah. it does make it seem more filmic. Well, yeah, and it gets you kind of the first ten fifteen minutes sort of get you into the mode of of the setting and everything. And so, I mean, I think it actually really works in that double episode length, but we'll see where the rest of the season goes. Next up is Treme, the city. I feel like this was the episode that says, Hey, you know how Treme makes you cry sometimes? We're not necessarily going to do that yet, but later it's going to get real. Okay. At least that's how I felt. It did move me to that point, but uh, the stuff with uh, Albert, I think is what you're referring to, right? 
Well, I'll, yeah, the stuff obviously with dead kids is never fun, but yeah, the Albert stuff I feel like is just a prime initiative. Later, this is going to destroy you, mofos. Yeah, pr- probably the the more effective of the the two dramas, I guess, or traumatic events. Oh, it was definitely the dead school child uh, for me. Dead that was children. Children, I should say. Yes, there are two, um, and the the now pretty much left on his own elementary school kid. Um, mm-hmm. whose sister was killed for being in the wrong place at the wrong time, and who's after her friend was killed for wearing his brother's hoodie. Um, anyways, that's delightfully pleasant. Yeah, it was a it was a tough episode. A lot a lot of stuff went down that was you know kind of difficult to to watch or deal with. I had some trouble with this episode though, not for that reason, but because it felt just a little little bit off to me, and I can't quite place it yet. I think I'm gonna need to see the whole season and have it in context to really be where it's at but um like for me albert walking around um the old haunts and just sort of spouting all this dialogue was that's never been who he is and so i don't know if this is just a reaction an out of character reaction to this news that he you know is clearly has the cancer is back and it's spread hugely and he's basically going to die soon I, so I don't know if that's a logical, somewhat out of character re- response to that, or if it's just out of character. Uh, I didn't have any trouble accepting that. Is I mean, here I I think that it's an interesting idea of having someone so proud and so strong, you know, who's been through so much over such a long period of time. I think it's an interesting idea to examine what happens with them when they're faced with the incontrovertible evidence that yes, you you fought, but it's over now. And it's going to be over very soon, in a very definitive sense. I don't. I, I didn't. I didn't have any trouble buying that that news would have that profound an effect on him. Well, I mean, of course it has a profound effect on him. I just so so. You, but for you, it wasn't strange for him to all of a sudden be monologuing. I don't think so. I mean, okay, I'd be monologuing. <laughs> yeah, but you're also not Albert. No, I I know. I get that I'm not Albert. I don't know. I just. They could have had him. Re- I guess they could have had him be like rageful about it and and spiteful and you know doing the usual Albert thing where he's like super proud about everything and refuses to accept what's happening. But I don't know. You could also say that that's that's part of Ladonna's influence. Well, yeah, no, I I think his reaction makes sense. I just thought it was weird that the way he's expressing that is not through his physical performance. Or what he's how he's choosing to spend his time. Like, I would have not been surprised to it, it would it, the exact same scenes, except he's staring at the the apartment building and and he says, "Used to be, it used to be a tree," and he looks wistful. That's what I would would have expected. It would have felt more in character. So the exact same emotional reaction, just not now. I'm going to tell you my life story. Person who should already I, know my life story. Or, let me let me put it this way. I mean, I think that this is the only time in Albert's life that we know of where finally fighting is not an option. Okay, yeah. So, so I I like I see where you're coming from, but uh-huh. I don't I I but I think that using words instead of just being wistful, I think in a in in his way is a quieter way of fighting fighting without fighting rather. I think that okay being wistful and just standing there would be the easier thing to do. Okay, I, I don't really understand what you're saying, but that's okay. That's <laughs> it's all right. Okay. Re- rewind and rewatch and listen again and see if it makes any sense. 
But anyway, the the short version is I don't have a problem with it. Yeah, the, and that the, and most people seem to really enjoy those scenes, and in I I seem to be completely on an island on that one. Um, I did really like, or, or like I said, um, in my review, it's on on site. His scene with Ladonna makes a lot more sense to me because they're still kind of getting to know each other. So that, you know, kind of filling in some of the gaps like that made more sense. And they have a different rapport. I do like that we get a little bit more time with Davina this week because she's been completely unexamined for the most part uh, as mm-hmm. compared to Delmond. Um, so, so I thought that was nice. The other issue I had with this episode is that for the first time in a very long time for me, the music felt like a crutch or like almost, I mean, I love this music, so it, it wasn't really a negative thing for me, but it felt like kind of like filler because there were so many completely unrelated musical, uh, musical performances. And normally it's tied in with a character who's there to, to watch, but I, I guess I needed a little bit more of what, of a context for Delmond. So I, cause I could tell that he was feeling something but I wasn't quite sure what it was supposed to be. So I wasn't connecting to him. So I wasn't connecting to his experience watching and performing in these different scenes. And same thing with Annie. I mean, I was fine with the idea that his career is really on the cusp of just totally hitting another level. And meanwhile, his life is pulling in another direction. And just seeing him perform with these incredible musicians, I think, was enough for me to get that. Plus the bonus of the music, I think, was in- like, I agree that the, the tie could have been underlined or drawn a little bit better. But I didn't really have an issue with it. See, he seemed like he was um, not upset, maybe, but just like uncomfortable on stage in a couple of them. Was I reading that wrong? Oh, I don't think that's wrong. Okay. If it's supposed to be about how stable he is and how, 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 how poised his career is, then I don't know why he is uncomfortable in that big band group performance well his his skills are at that level but I, I clearly his life is pulling in multiple directions okay i just yeah clearly there i have a disconnect with with some of these scenes and as the person who loves this show so much and loves all the music and loves the atmosphere and everything it was odd the only other issue that really springs to mind how naive is is Jeanette? did she really <laughs> think she would get her i mean that's ridiculous uh, that her scenes were totally worth it for Davis's reaction to, you know, I'm staying with you tonight. Right. And he was like, you, you, you can are? see like the quiet, you, 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 it's like really like that puppy dog look just short oh. of a fist bump. Yeah. yeah. That was fist pump rather. Uh, actually I think my fa- like weirdly my favorite scene or not my favorite scene, but I think one of the best written scenes was the only scene we've gotten so far with LaDonna and Larry. Yeah. Her now ex-husband. And he's just so he's fuming every second they're together. And the great thing about it is we love LaDonna, but he's well within his rights to be fuming. You know, she pretty much abandoned him. So, and the kids. So there is, we love LaDonna, but we, we don't know Larry as well, but there's absolutely no reason for us not to sympathize with Larry. Yeah. I thought that was great. And I love that he's been taking care of the kids because that shows the strength of his connection with them. Cause she's been with him for quite a while. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, so from before the show started, I want to say, right? I, I want to say that one? too, but yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I, you know, and I believe, you know, that she would have left and was going to take the kids because she's left. And he said, no, the kids should stay with me and finish out the school year and we'll figure it out. Um, cause that, that's what makes sense to me for her. And so kind of, 
watching her and Antoine kind of discuss that a little bit of where they're at and where their family's at, where the kids are at and all of that, I thought was was really great. And I absolutely agree. I was, I was so glad to see Larry back. I didn't know whether they were going to make time for him this season. Uh, but, 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 and, and that he still is trying, he's still hoping that she's going to change her mind. It's like, don't you know this woman that you were married yeah. to? Yeah, but you know, everyone has their blind spots or their wish, their bits of wishful thinking. But I, I don't know. It's it's the first time in a long time where I've seen a portrait of divorce that's relatively even-handed. Yeah. You know, usually, it's so easy to demonize one partner or the other. But it's true. I hadn't thought of it that we see her with both of her exes and her current beau, mm -hmm. and the the contrast is interesting. And the scene with her and Antoine is so sweet. Yeah, it was great. I I like this. You know, I like. If you look at the arc of his maturity over the series, I mean, Antoine, he's done so well for himself. He's all grown up now. Yeah, it's yeah that that was another great scene for sure. Any other thoughts on Treme? Or should we move on to Masters of Sex? Let's do that. Okay, Masters of Sex Valley Victories. This is our what penultimate episode? Penultimate episode, and I, I okay. Again, we'll save Ethan for next week, but. There was a lot I liked about this episode. I think it was actually probably one of my two or three favorites. The I think the whole sojourn with Lillian and uh, Virginia, even though, yes, it's clearly a very obvious speed bump on the way to William and Virginia reuniting, blah, blah, blah. I actually think despite that, it still worked really well, mostly because they play brilliantly off each other, and I liked their... Their scene of ha of tracking down the wives and Virginia's sort of instinctive instinctive questioning and responses. I thought that stuff was all really well written. Uh, but actually, weirdly enough, the Ethan and George scene might have been my favorite of the episode, even though I don't care about Ethan and I, we don't know George very well. Which Ethan and George scene? So uh, near the end. Sorry, near the end when they sort of reconcile a little bit. Uh, I, in, in particular, I just I really like what they do with George in this episode, where he's still kind of a sh he's actually he's still just totally a shit heel, mm -hmm. and clearly he you know created a family and then abandoned it, et cetera, et cetera. But in, in a way, I kind of like that it lets us see both sides for him, where and without necessarily excusing it, where it's like yes, he's a, he's done awful things and he's clearly you know kind of a jerk. But unlike most men of his time, he at least recognizes the ways in which he's a jerk and the ways in which he's failed. And his question about, well, if I don't want my kids to be like me, what can I teach them? I think is a fair one. Okay, you can be better and then you can teach them that. Well, but I don't think a guy with George's limits necessarily knows how to be better. Yeah, you could try. <laughs> you could try, but yeah, anyway. I think, well, because I think it's an excellent point. Uh, I think it's also, a, I think it is very honest for that character. I think it's also it also lets him off the hook. That's part of why he frames his basic, pretty much abandonment of his children in that context. Well, I don't want them to be like me, so what can I possibly... Yeah, again, I, I, I don't think it works to excuse the character in a real-life context, but I think in, I think... As, it makes sense for him. It's really good writing, is what yes. I'm trying to say. Yes, it's, it is. And there's so much good dialogue this week. This actually has pound for pound, regardless of what our other misgivings are, some of the best writing on TV. I loved all the for Jane. <laughs> <laughs> that was such a great perform every single time. I laughed every single time. <laughs> that was great. Yes, that was really good. Um, Any thoughts on Libby? Uh, oh, Libby. Our heart, I think everyone's heart breaks a little bit for Libby every week. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I, I'm really impressed with what, with what they've done with her over the course of the season. It's, I think it's, you can make a strong case for wife or girlfriend of the protagonist being the most thankless role in all of TV and film history. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe other than henchmen. <laughs> it's one of the, it's like the female equivalent of henchmen. It's just so rarely, whenever I see an actress I really like and I look at her IMDb, like her future IMDb credits and she's misses whatever the main character is. I'm like, I don't, this isn't going to be good for her almost mm-hmm. every time. Mm-hmm. And um, I think they've done some really, and I, again, this probably owes to somewhat, at least to having an all female or not all female, but majority female writing staff and a female showrunner, but they're, they've really demonstrated a lot of sensitivity to that character, not by making her an angel, but by making clear that she's made a lot of effort to try to break into the sort of more private aspects of William's life in a way that she hopes will be supportive. And she hasn't necessarily done a perfect job, and clearly she's been naive about certain things, but it's impossible to come out of this season of TV hating Libby. There's no way. Yeah. Well, and and think of where we were at with that character in the pilot. Where we're like, uh... <laughs> this is not a great performance, and it's not it's well not written, necessarily gonna work. and... This is how is this possibly going to work? Yeah, you know, I think I think that's also a, it's a credit to the writing, but it's also a credit to the performance. Uh, that actress has really brought the character around and Caitlin made her Fitzgerald, yeah. Caitlin Fitzgerald. Yeah, she's been great. Um, yeah, and that that really works. I've also really enjoyed uh, uh, Jane and and her attempts to kind of keep you know everything stable in the office and going back and forth between Virginia and and Bill and then also Libby and. Now, my question for you is how much time has theoretically passed? Because it occurred to me part of what's making that really difficult for me to chart is Ginny's kids. Because they yeah, should they have don't aged. Age. That's right. They don't age. That's I hadn't even thought of that. But they don't age. And yet Libby gets more and more pregnant. Yeah. Well, and also just thinking of because isn't this presentation, you know, in the in the in the trailer, I guess this could be a spoiler. Um Masters mentioned something about this is a study that's 20 years in the making, implying like when he started studying medicine. Yeah. But still, I feel like it's got to have been at least a year since Virginia mm-hmm. started working for him. And those kids have not aged. Yeah. Well, the show's always had a slippery sense of continuity in time. So it's clearly not been a priority for them, which is fine by me. Of course, the last thing I wanted to mention was uh, the ending with Lizzie Kaplan singing uh, You Don't Know Me was uh first of all i had no idea she could sing at all so that's always isn't that always nice when you when you yeah. find that find that out i find i feel like that's always nice and i would i would have been happy I, I actually would have been really pleased if they'd made that a full-blown musical number with dancing and choreography uh but the way they did it i think was fine i, I don't think it said anything particularly profound about the characters but it was a nice way to showcase her i think well and uh, it's on the nose but it's also really obvious to us. It's just like with, with Chimay, eh, don't you know who you married? Uh, don't you know who you're trying to marry here, uh, Ethan? Because there's a 0% chance she's going to follow you to another town. That's just, that's not going to happen. And uh, whether she certainly, she got scared off the last time you started to get serious. And why do you think, then again, she came back after you hit her. But we'll talk about that next week. Which, um, oh, oh. Can I just say something? Again, there are so many openings to make the Ethan Virginia thing so brilliant. 
and I'm I really don't think they're going to take any of them. But for instance, the fact that she just chooses these intensely problematic men mm-hmm. could actually be fodder for something really interesting if they make him problematic again. But I don't know if they will. Yeah, but uh, but so having her saying "You don't know me" when it's so clear that he thinks he knows her but clearly doesn't fits nicely. Uh, and I thought the performance made sense for the character and, and she sounded good. So yeah, that was a nice little touch. And we, we came into this segment with, with that performance. Clearly it was a good one. I, I was torn. I was like, there's so much great music on Treme this week, but there's also this really nice character moment. Yeah. I like when my TV shows give me an option of which, which great music to use for the podcast. Totally. So let's uh, take a break now and come back with our week in genre. When I look out my Many sights to see And when I look in my window So many different people to be That it's strange So strange You got to pick up genre we have banshee sleepy hollow the golem which is their mid-season finale we have supernatural holy terror which is their mid-season finale we have grim stories we tell our young black mirror be right back and american horror story coven the sacred taking i have not caught up with the show yet but you caught up with season one of banshee right we're you know our tv lists end of year lists are due soon and i've heard a lot of noise about cinemax's banshee and we've already enjoyed strike back so i figured i'll give it a shot and Okay, I'll give Banshee credit for this. I watched the entire ten episode first season over the course of a week, which is pretty impressive. I think that's that's a if if I'm getting through it. Admittedly, I have had a lot of time on my hands. I'm you know avoiding packing, but still, I watched the whole thing. So credit due to them for that. Credit also due to the fact that for some reason that escapes my faculties, Cinemax is the only channel network organization, however you want to call it that seems to be able to pull off Hollywood-style action set pieces without embarrassing itself on, like, a regular basis. And there aren't as many, actually, there aren't nearly as many on Banshee as there are on Strike Back. And in particular... It would be hard for there to be as many. Would, yeah, you would need one to two per week. Yeah. And, it, and there is a rather embarrassing giant explosion near the end of the season that's quite regrettable. There's three or four really impressive set pieces, car chases, things like that, that I, I'm just hats off to them for pulling off the other thing i want to give it credit for is the fact that uh the lead character um lucas hood not his real name uh played by anthony Starr, he's not necessarily the most versatile actor ever and he looks so distractingly like an exact amalgam of scott speedman and lee schreiber (laughs) like it's it blows my mind it's like 75 percent scott speedman with a little leave in there oh so frustrating look seriously kate i know you don't watch the show so look him up right now Um, but anyway, I appreciate the fact that unlike a lot of TV action heroes, when he's going through something really stressful, he looks terrified and often on the verge of tears, (laughs) even though he's this super manly, manly man. 
So I actually really appreciated that about his character, and they brought it up like every couple of episodes. So that was a nice touch that actually brought a lot to the character in the show. That being said, um, I'm less than impressed with the overall arc of the season. In, in particular, the many... Okay, I appreciate that you have to sus- suspend your, your disbelief every once in a while, but suspending your disbelief all of the time for so many aspects of one show is tiresome. And the way they end the season... I mean, the new season starts up in January, and maybe Kate and I will watch it in tandem, but... Um, the, I cannot think of a way for them to get out of that that isn't completely ridiculous and makes you want to stop watching. So if they can pull it off, well done. But yeah, I um a lot some things I appreciate about Banshee, other things that I'm not so fond of. Also, hugely underdeveloped supporting characters, especially uh, Job, played by Hoon Lee. Such theoretically such an interesting character and so unusual for TV, but he, you know he gets so little to do. So yeah. That was disappointing. and uh, But also credit, I keep flitting between pros and cons. This is a pro slash con. The two most absurdly long fight sequences in television history happen in this season in television. There is an episode late in the season where one principal character's entire storyline for that episode is the fight they're in. <laughs> That's kind it of takes awesome. Up li- yeah. <laughs> It's serious. If that, was, if that was a real fight, both of those characters would be dead twice over. But still... Yeah. You know, you know, credit. Credit where credit's due for TV for making TV history. Fair enough. Uh, so so you recommend I should check it out? Or can I jump in with season two? Uh, I think there's a couple... There's, I will say there's one episode, I think it's episode five, that basically is like, so imagine if Sons of Anarchy were real. Wouldn't you think all those bikers were assholes who should die? <laughs> is That's maybe the episode you should watch. Okay. Well, first I have to watch Borgen, and then I have to okay. watch Adventure Time. And then if there's time, we'll catch up with Banshee. So we'll see how yeah, it goes. Yeah, maybe just pick up the cold notes. But <laughs> yeah, I th- you could safely... Uh, oh, sorry. One more thing I have to add. Uh, it's a problem w- when your principal villains uh, mythology slash background slash motivations are theoretically a sli- slightly more interesting than your heroes. Actually, a lot more interesting, especially if your heroes' motivations are kind of boring. So I feel like they should probably tweak that a little bit. Maybe. Anyway. You also checked out Sleepy Hollow this week, the Gollum, the Golem, I should say. I have not been able to check it out yet, which it it sort of pains me that that I have been able to see it, but you have, because I'm such a bigger fan than you are. Uh, what did you have to say? What did you want to say about uh, the Gollum? The Golem. Ah! Yeah, Gollum is a registered trademark of, J- of J.R.R. Tolkien. Yes. Um, the Gollum... <sighs> I have such mixed feelings about Sleepy Hollow. I feel like it does some things unusually well, and then other things predictably badly. Everything with Orlando Jones and his family troubles just puts me to sleep every single time. It takes up, and it seems to take up 15 minutes of every episode. It's not so much annoying as just kind of useless. Like, I don't know what it's meant. Like, I get the Orlando Jones character. He's a good guy, but he's conflicted, and he's trying to be a family man, but there's other stuff going. Like, I get it. Okay, Mm -hmm. I don't need to to be reminded of that every week or every other week. I totally understand what's happening. It's not that complicated. So that stuff they just keep nailing into the ground. Um, but I think my bigger problem, despite the fact that it's got so many great moments of dialogue and performance, is that the actual mythology of the show, to me, is getting less and less interesting the more complicated it gets. Okay. For instance, this week uh, we have, I mean, we already had a mention of this last week, so it's not really a surprise. But, you know, we have the addition of Ichabod's son as an issue and that just seems like it's headed straight into angel season five territory 
like it's season really four, fast. right? Season four, yeah. yeah sorry. Um, yeah, and I just have no, especially since we see him. How can I explain this without spoiling it for you? There, there's, there's reasonable evidence to believe that when he does inevitably come onto the show, he will be a teenager. Oh God! It's like, oh God, don't do that, you guys. Anyway, we have the, we have the re-edition of John Noble using his fringe accent as opposed to his real accent, as we hear on the, on the Good Wife, and that's always fun. He has a great, he has a really great talent for lending gravitas to the most ridiculous situations in dialogue. So I can see why they're keeping him around. But uh, I'm not all that stuff like again like all the you know commenting on christmas traditions moment like all that stuff is great i would rather watch a talk show with ichabod crane (laughs) than than the than ponder the future of what sleepy hollow is going to be like because it's not i don't think it's got a bright future well keep in mind it's only 13 episodes each season and then it that's that is definitely in its favor and so so they'll you know pretty soon here they'll be done with the season and then they'll have a hiatus to ponder some of this and hopefully they'll figure out what they're doing with Katrina and all of that, and that will be resolved. Because that's been the one kind of questionable part of the show. The the whole uh, Abby and Ichabod rapport has been fantastic. They've like you know I think I think John Cho has been a lot of fun in that kind of recurring role, and it's it's just so wonderful. I feel bad that I mention this so frequently about Sleepy Hollow because I it shouldn't be something that I mention every time. But it's great to have a lead character who's African-American and is not defined as the black character. And we have two yeah. of them. Sort of like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, same thing. Right, and it's not ignored either, like, yeah. you know, with all those comments in the early episodes about, well, if this were back then, etc. Yeah, and that, that and it, yeah, it, it happens in a sensible, sensical fashion. And I, that's so great. I just wish that the... You know, it's getting the micro right. It's the macro that worries me. Yeah. And we'll see how that pieces together. I look forward to catching up with this episode. Maybe I'll touch on it next week if I have any other thoughts. But for now, let's move on to Supernatural Holy Terror. And I feel like I should mention this because we got the, uh, I mean, I don't believe not Ezekiel, whose name I can't quite remember. I don't believe him for a second that Sam is actually dead. Spoiler alert, they're not going to kill one of their two main characters. Um, but it, it should be fun to see where that goes. I like that they brought back Metatron, and uh, I didn't expect them to actually kill Tr- Kevin. Poor Kevin Tran. I've enjoyed him quite a bit. Uh, I also don't, I don't like that the base is now theoretically not a safe haven for them. I think the show really benefits from having one place that they can return. It was uh, the bar, and then it was Bobby's, and now it's it's this place and so i'm hoping that's not gonna be put into jeopardy um but yeah i think they know what they're doing with where they're going for the season and that's interesting i just wish they hadn't killed kevin it was it was they did it well if they're gonna do it but the show is better when there are other characters besides just our two brothers we'll see what happens next grim stories we tell our young my review is up at sound on site um this week i literally simon uh did science (laughs) <laughs> double fist pump up in the air while I was watching it because we got uh, Juliet, you know, to the rescue with her her vet knowledge and there's like a pathogen kind of thingy that came up. It was actually pretty fun. And um, and and yes, again, like I said last week, there, there are, this is not a show that bowls me over every week, but it's a show that I enjoy 
And how many times, like, think about, like, there's something weird that goes on and there's, like, a strange fluid creeping out of somebody's ear or something. In one Someone's of these... like, let's touch it. And, and, and Juliet goes, get a sample. So even though, <laughs> even though the, the threat has passed and the kid is fine now, but she still says get a sample. Because she, she's a vet. You know, so she's not like a research scientist or anything, but she has a medical background and she, 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 it's not just okay that, oh, the threat has passed. It's no, we got to know what this is so that if it happens again, we can take care of, you know, I love those details so much. So thank you, Grim. I continue to enjoy them. I also figured I'd mention I've seen the two-part finale. It's not actually a two-part finale, so I was wrong in my review when I mentioned it that way. It's two episodes that are airing back to back and, uh... There's some interesting elements, some very entertaining elements. All I'll say is that the, uh, the 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 second episode is the better of the two. Twelve days of Krampus, so Krampus is terrifying. So well done, Grim. There's some there's some good Krampus stuff in there, and I laughed out loud a couple times. As well as there, there's a nice subplot, and I think people will enjoy enjoy that one. the The episode before it is a little uh, forgettable, but uh, that's cold blood or cold blooded. I can't remember quite exactly, but uh, I think people will enjoy their Grim Does Christmas, even if it's not quite as fun as Supernatural's Christmas episode uh, a few seasons back. Let's move on to Black Mirror. Be right back. I actually thought, you know, for all the ballyhoo of the first season and critics and bodily fluids, I think that this was actually my favorite episode of Black Mirror so far. I think it had the best... Uh, the best execution, the best realization in terms of the details. I think the characters were the best defined, and I think it 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 really prioritized just exploring a specific idea in an emotional sense that made sense for the characters and didn't worry about you know trying to provide shocking twists or anything. I mean, yes, if you were paying close attention to the attic discussion, you would have guessed the ending right away etc etc i wasn't doing that you were but i don't think it makes a difference to how effective the episode is you know you don't need yeah a big corkscrew moment at the end for the episode to work it's really about the moments on the way there and i think um just every aspect i mean yes i think that the step into having i mean the whole premise of the episode is, for anyone who hasn't seen it is um that you can have a, a a digital simulation of a recently departed loved one appear to you through social media and on your phone so you can have you know simulated real slash simulated conversations with them and then it takes this other step into having an actual physical manifestation that was a little far-fetched but i didn't have trouble accepting it as something that character would go for in the circumstance i just thought the the caliber of acting and writing was just a little bit more consistent than we've gotten from the other episodes. Yeah, I thought the performances worked really well. I liked the little touches of futuristic tech, like her art easel and or design yes. studio. Those little, th those are the touches that I most enjoy when you set something um, in a slightly futuristic time. It's not all whiz bang gadgetry. It's flying cars no it's little things it's, that, it's little yeah. things like that yeah and uh and so so that that worked um or like the i think there was like a voicemail in one of the other episodes the yeah. you know just little details but, like that but at the same time when you drop a phone it still breaks yeah <laughs> like little again like little touches like that oh that and the phones were sense. tiny did you notice that how, how thin they were it was like yes i was envious i was very envious um, but yeah, but yeah, again, like you said, when you drop a phone, a phone still breaks. Cause that's how, you know, that's how it's still a physical thing. Well, and it's still the way phones are designed to be breakable so that you'll buy another one. Exactly. Exactly. I thought the performances were really good. I, when you look at the, the way it ends, I mean, 
I, because I'm me and I'm the worst, I'm sitting there thinking, why doesn't she have him wipe the memory and he can look like anything, right? Because he adds a mole, so he can change, he can choose to change his physical appearance, so why doesn't... No, no, no. He can change two-dimensional aspects. Yeah. So he can't change, I mean... He can, I guess I suppose he could change the color of his skin, but otherwise he'll look exactly can, the same. But he should be able to change his hair. He should be able to change other elements too. Hair is not two dimensional. Hair's three dimensional. Hair's three dimensional. Okay, fine. You could cut it and dye it, so he would look. You could. You could. You could do a lot to make him look different. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> I suppose, but it's. I don't know. You could, I mean, I, I think, think you could basically, and, and he could delete his, you know, his character, her personality things. No, but hold on. So you think that she should keep him around, not in the attic, but looking different? Well, I think if you're going to keep him around, then, you know, because it's too painful to see him, just turn him into something else. So it's not like you're the ghost of your, of your loved one. I mean, I guess, but, why wouldn't she, that even occur to her? But why would it occur to her to keep him around in some different form? What if she gets married again? What's he going to be then? Well, but she he can just be, I don't know, take care of the house guy. I mean, it's a robot, right? Really? Just the, 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 the taking care of the house guy who never ages, who's just around all the time and is strangely robotic? It's just a matter of, hey, your dad died. We have a somewhat physical manifestation in the attic just for you. To visit, like you can tell anyone you want about it. it, doesn't really matter. Everyone knows the technology is there, or they will soon because they yeah. said it's experimental. Yeah, like it makes everything about that decision made sense to me. I don't I, know what your problem. I think is. it's so strange that you that you don't think it's weird that there's a random kind of living, kind of not person just hanging out in the attic, and that that's, But it's not random. That's, it's her father. Yeah, but it's so that she can have memories of her father. Okay, well that's how is that as opposed to having him around the house? How is that? Or less weird. It's not less weird. It's way more practical. Okay. I don't know. What? What? Come on. Okay. I. Just, it seems very strange. The whole thing makes makes way more but sense. But these are me. the things I was thinking about. So clearly, I was you know uh, not a hundred percent engaged. But I did enjoy it. I thought it was very well done, and uh, and it was a much subtler, especially coming after the season one finale, which was difficult to watch even though it was a very interesting concept so i thought this this may have been the best marriage of concept and execution okay so at least you agree with me on that oh yes yes so i and i did enjoy it very much i think that's a good indicator of good thought-provoking you know and anthology sci-fi like this that that it makes you think about what you would do in that situation you know makes you ponder that i think that's good Yes. Okay, our last genre show, our last show in our week in TV is American Horror Story Coven, The Sacred Taking. I don't have much to say about this one other than I'm still enjoying it, and fie you, Dennis O'Hare. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, it's clearly a transitional episode setting up the end game, like a highly serialized, especially a, a one-off like American Horror Story is every year has to do. Uh, but I will say, I just want to appreciate at this particular juncture, the fact that a show this effing insane and i don't mean insane in terms of gore like it has been in some past seasons or insane in terms of you know the they're throwing everything together in a crazy mishmash of stuff you haven't seen before i mean insane in terms of like <laughs> this is uh, in terms of the ideas being thrown around in terms of the fact that this is not just a show about witches it's not just a show about voodoo not just a show about period new orleans it's not just a show about gender relations or America's history with race. 
it's a show about all of those things and a bunch of other things and Stevie Nicks. <laughs> like, what? like, and the fact and the fact that it's doing all those things and the show actually has a huge following. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like I have to tip of the hat to Ryan Murphy because I feel like he's the only jerk on the on the face of the earth who could have pulled this off. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, and and as I just mentioned, I like to be able to think about these elements. I like to to have shows that make me you know sit back and and try to figure out what they have to say about the world or what these characters represent or you know i i like thinking about my television most of the time and so it's you know i've really enjoyed adding on american horror story to to my roster of shows i don't know if i'll go back and watch the first two seasons Oh, don't don't do the first season. Oh God, don't don't um, do it. Uh, but but I'm glad that that I've I've jumped on with season three, and we'll see about well, season four. And, and more broadly, just just quickly, I know we're going long, but the it's not just happy to say, oh, these are issues that are happening or that have happened. Like I think it's done a great job of arguing that these are still issues that are present, and then having absolutely no concrete conclusions to draw about them. Mm -hmm. That's so refreshing that there's no moral ever to be drawn from American Horror Story. It's just, it's like, here's that, and here's this, and when you put them together, isn't that hairy? The end. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) That's so much more engaging to me. Well, what wins your week in genre, sir? You know what? I'll I'll give it to Black Mirror because I I think that's probably the best they're gonna do. Okay, uh, it's close. I'm gonna give it to American Horror Story though because I did have a lot of fun with this episode and I'm gonna I'm gonna miss. I mean, this you talked about her last season, but I'm loving Lily Rabe so much. Right? She's a, she's so good. She's so good. I love her <laughs> on this, and I'm so glad to have discovered her and just and and to have discovered her in this character too. Just it's, it's such a it's such a great character. I look for and I might just watch season two just for her and kind of power through the more disturbing elements <laughs> because I want to see more of her on my television. But uh, anyways, uh, that wraps up our week in TV. Our outro music is Sweepy Teeth by the Bicycles. You can find a post up at Sound on Site for this for this podcast where you can leave us comments. Let us know what you think about this week's TV and how you'll be filling up your hiatus which shows we should try to catch before we finalize our lists you can also find us in itunes where we have an m4a chaptered feed and an mp3 unchaptered feed you can also of course like us on facebook to follow the goings on at sound site tv and you can also email us the television gmail.com so many ways to get in touch and then of course there's also twitter i'm at the televerse you are at sucker Howell. and simon what is our question of the week well you actually kind of already asked it but i'm curious you know Kate and I only have a week or two to do the rest of our due diligence and see something that we might have not found time to see. There's not a lot. Trust me. We've really done our effing <laughs> But if there's anything that we've never covered on the show that aired this year that you think might theoretically have some contention for end of year list, I'd love to know what it is. And then I will fight you. Are you going to catch up with Enlightened? Uh, you know, I will watch that that key episode. No, but don't I, do that. No. Watch the watch the season or don't because you've seen the first I season, right? I started with the season. I I know. I I did I did the same thing each season. I tried the first 3 episodes and I was like uh, Just keep going. I, Pick up from episode 4. There's only like 10 episodes in the season. Uh, uh, maybe. We'll see. It, but anyway, I want to see what other people other than Kate have okay, to say because okay. I hear enough of your opinion every That's week. That's true. You do. You do. <laughs> you get quite a lot of that. That wraps up our uh, Week in TV. And with that, we will take a break and go to our DVD shelf with Scott Mesel of the Week talking The Office UK. Gareth Keenan, Assistant Regional Manager. Assistant to the Regional Manager. Gareth's my right-hand man immediately. 
beneath me. Oh, as Nacho said to a bishop. No, he's not. I'm not. Oh, what is that? Uh, whoa, 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 Dave, whoa. Right, that is it. Slow down, you move too fast. Solomon's here. All part of the job. What's going on? Put my stapler inside the jelly again. That's the third time he's done it. It wasn't even funny the first time. Why has he done that? Just told him once that I don't like jelly. And trust the way it moves. Yeah, you showed him a weakness. He pounced. You should know about that. Oh, uh, what is in there? It's my stapler. Well, don't do that. Well, eat it out. There's people starving in the world, which I hate. So, and it's a waste, so, how do you know it's yours? Because it's got my name on it in Tipex. Yeah, don't eat it now, I mean, chemicals. Right, you can be my witness. Give him an official warning. How do you know it was me? It's always <laughs> you. Can't you, can't you discipline him? Oh, kinky! <laughs> no, the thing about practical jokes is you've got to know when to stop as well as start, and now's the time to stop putting Gareth's personal possessions in jelly, all right? Gareth, it's only a trifling matter. <laughs> Here we go. We're always like this. You oh, should go put him in custody. He's going to fit in here. We're like the Vic and Bob, aren't we? And, and one extra one. Oh, God. Yeah, I'm more worried, really, about damage to company property, that's all. Trifling. I'm just trying to think of other desserts mm. to do. with the Televerse. This is Kate Kalzik, joined as ever by Simon Howell. And this week on the DVD shelf, we are going across the pond once again for another one of those fantastic short-run but oh-so-beloved series. This time it's The Office, the original UK version, of course. And here to help us talk about it from the week, it's Scott Meslow. Scott, welcome back. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. So what made you want to talk about The Office UK? I was so relieved that no one else had already claimed this. Um, I'm not really going out on a limb when I say that this is easily one of the best sitcoms of the past couple decades. It's so brilliantly conceived. It was so groundbreaking. It set the stage for so many other shows that I love now. Uh, and it holds up amazingly well, you know, a decade after it ended, basically. Yeah, it's so interesting to watch, especially in, uh, in in relation to some of these actors who we've become more familiar with. Of course, I was introduced to all of them with The Office UK, but to wa to, to go back and and watch it now and see Martin Freeman, it just, he looks so young. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a few other of these actors, too, that, uh, that I've gotten to see in many other things. A few that I would like to see more, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure. But no, it was wonderful to, to go back and watch some of uh, watch the show. Uh, I, I was introduced to it in college and uh i had i hadn't seen it but a friend cued me in and uh after you know a couple episodes with the subtitles i was <laughs> completely hooked and so on board and you're and you're right at the time i hadn't seen anything else like it and now of course this is a really common sort of method of, of television of sitcoms in particular yeah but it plays it plays much more straight with the documentary stuff than shows do now and i had forgotten that you know before that stuff was entrenched and we could just be like oh, talking heads on Modern Family, even though they don't make sense. Like, they really work <laughs> hard to make it plausible that a documentary crew would be filming these people. And they and work a lot harder to build that crew into the world, especially in the Christmas special, not to get too far ahead. Oh, definitely. Simon, what was your relationship with The Office? Oh, man. I must have watched... I remember taking out the DVDs of The Office UK 
both series and the Christmas special. I, I never actually bought them. I still don't own it. But I took out the DVDs from a local video rental store in Halifax easily a dozen times. If not if not me personally, then me or someone in my peer group, and then we would rewatch it. It's easily the show that I've watched the entirety of the most often of any show ever. I mean, it helps that it's only, what, 14 episodes? So... You know, uh, it, it's a, you know, you can rewatch it in a day, no problem, unlike many other shows. So that's to its advantage. But when you talk about its influence, I mean, you really can't understate that. I mean, not only did this show perfect the whole mockumentary style, it didn't invent it, but obviously, but I think in sitcom format, it pretty much perfected it. I mean, this show was remade at least six times in, you know, Quebec, Brazil, France, and of course in the States. Where you know, let's let's not discuss that at all. How about the whole other kettle of fish? But um, God, it's I, we've we've talked before on the show. I'm sure at some point about how there's no such thing as a perfect series, uh, and I still think that's true. And I'll, I'll get to I'll get to the imperfections of The Office at some point. But The Office comes really, really close. And again, the length is a huge help with that, almost to the point of unfairness. But I have very few qualms with the way this was put together it just it has this feeling of total serendipity in terms of ricky gervais and stephen merchant and their sense in their you know writing together gervais has a as a performer his strengths as an actor and as a writer and his weird sentimental streak that you never that you don't quite see coming until it arrives and that ends up being a thing in some of his other series as well everything just clicks in a in a way that it rarely happens in this medium. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, and it's something that uh, when you talk about the perfect series, or in this case, the perfect length, and I know we're we're not going to talk too much about The Office US, but I in talking about The Office UK, I think what is so you know an important thing we've all mentioned it, but an important thing to what makes this series work is that short run that it's only twelve episodes and a Christmas special or two Christmas specials, but basically one Christmas special, um, and that lets these characters be more extreme than than so many other. Uh, sitcoms, especially American sitcoms, but and and it's funny to think of a character like Tim as extreme, but I think he really is because he's he's so unwilling to move or change or take risks. It, he he's so set in where he's at. Uh, you can't really have that in your lead too often. If they don't change at all, and you have fifty episodes, a hundred episodes, you quickly tire of them. But because there's only twelve. You know, from from Tim to, of course, David Brent, as you know, he's clearly more heightened, but also Mackenzie Crook. And, uh, you know, many of these characters for me are you look at the the U.S. version and they're similar but wackier. And here they're really, you know, there's a sense of reality to each of these characters that you just don't really get in a lot of other shows. Yeah, there's that level of despair to it where it's not quite right to say it feels like it could be a real documentary because it is heightened. But on some level, like. These are such recognizable types and and were at the time before. I feel like in some ways the American version of The Office, I know we'll stay away as much as possible, but it it made it harder to go back and watch this once you'd seen that. I, I had friends who tried and just couldn't because they got so used to the heightened versions of the exact same character types, they couldn't really take the step backwards. Um, but watching it kind of in a bubble as much as is possible with this show, it's it's just, it's so, it's so plausible the the arcs that these characters go through i mean tim 
Tim hits every beat he should. I love at the end of the first series when he, you know, almost leaves and basically gets promoted up just enough to stay. It's like, it's mm-hmm. so tragic comic, but it's like, that is a, how a lot of jobs work. Like you're not totally thrilled with it, but you get locked in and you can't get off the path. Mm-hmm. And every beat of the way, I think every character hits where they should. Well, and I think, you know, in devising the series, Gervais was kind of brilliant in the way that he made Tim, the Tim's really the hero. I mean, David Brent might get the most screen time and, and hog the attention, but he's smart enough to know that if he designs the series around the Tim and Don relationship, everything else will just kind of fall into place as long as that relationship is, is well-written and the beats are well-conceived. And I think every single one of those beats is, is well-conceived. And we never hate Don, even though she's, you know, preventing our, you know, in TV terms, forever couple from being together. You know, we always know where she's coming from, even when we think that she's making the wrong decision. I think that's a... That's a facet of good writing and also of a good performance from Lucy Davis, who, uh, as you were kind of alluding to this earlier, Kate, hasn't been getting enough work. <laughs> Not even a little bit. Remember when she was on Studio 60 and they didn't even really use her there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. God, yeah. I haven't thought about that in a while. <laughs> <laughs> no one else did either. <laughs> but no, I need more Lucy Davis in my TV life. And I think yeah, pretty she's much. so wonderful in this. Yeah, everyone else does too. And, and she makes Dawn so likable, but also. Especially, you know, I just finished up the season two finale, and she's so sad. She's so incredibly sad, and it's 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 such a trick to keep to keep that balance between you know where where we see her when she's talking, giving her talking head about you don't need passion, you don't really need happiness, even if you have stability, and uh, but then to to still you know remain true to that smiley you know entertain you know, entertaining lovable character while you also see that this tinge of oppressingly realistic you know ennui or whatever from her it's it's a really great performance yeah I, I will say i love i think all of the actors i love seeing how the different characters react to having the camera around because they're also conscious of it in different ways but i think she's the best when she doesn't know the camera's on her when you catch those little glimpses of sadness or lee you know her fiance will make some kind of cutting comment and there's barely a change in her performance, but it's just enough that the camera catches it. Like she plays that so well. Absolutely. And then of course, you know, having seen the, the office UK before the American version, uh, watching Dwight was so odd to me because Mackenzie Crook is so <laughs> delicious as Garrett. <laughs> and uh, it just like, I can see the the version of the office where it's it's the post apocalyptic future and somehow somebody's given Gareth a gun and some amount of control and it's just terrifying. Uh, these, these are the types of things that I think of when I when I watch that character. But just to to watch you know the the back and forth between you know Gareth and Don and and Tim is just really entertaining. Well, and I think they always found the right balance with Gareth. They always gave him just the right amount of screen time, made him just wacky enough, and made him very specific in terms of his background and his particular brand of social ineptitude. It was it was also they were it was he was always written so consistently and never overexposed. I feel like that was I I, I can't help but refer to this. I mean, I feel like Dwight kind of took over the office us at some point 
besides the other problems with that character, I think they just overused him because he, you know, they they gave into the fact that he's very popular. Whereas I think everyone watching The Office UK loves Gareth, but I don't think we ever need the Gareth episode. No, he's he plays perfectly as much as they use him and cards on the table. We can't we can't not reference The Office US. It's just it's permeated. <laughs> it's permeated yeah. the way we have to talk about all of these too much. Um, yeah. But yeah, cards on the table, like. Dwight was always my problem with the U.S. version of The Office, and I never quite, even at its best, I enjoyed it, but it never, it never reached that level for me because he never, that character never worked, and it affected the way that the dynamic in The Office worked too much for me. Well, it's a very different, you know, for for being the the character that fills that same role on both shows, it's it's a very different approach, and I think just contrasting Dwight and Gareth tells you everything you need to know about the U.S. version versus the U.K. version. I and I enjoy them both, but Gareth actually feels like a person who could exist, and Dwight is not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and so when you know we get the assistant regional manager, assistant to the regional manager, just like the the way that those are played and the. <laughs> straight facedness of of that character. I mean, I think Mackenzie Crook is fantastic. I'm even enjoying him on Almost Human, which is a nothing character at the moment, but I'm just so glad he's on my TV. I don't really care. We've already mentioned the Christmas special, and I have a statement that may be controversial, so I'm just going to throw it out there now. I love the Christmas special. I think it's great, but I think the series would be better without it. (laughs) I have heard people make that argument. Defend that. I disagree with you, but defend it. Okay. I feel like, the, first of all, the final moments of the Series 2 finale are perfect. Both everything that happens with David Brent and sort of the conclusion of his conflict with Neil uh, is perfect. What happens to me with, with Tim and Don is, is so beautifully realized with the you know taking off the microphone and all that stuff. So many great moments there. And the Christmas special clearly exists. And I don't know whether it was maybe someone else knows what the production history was like, if they always knew they were going to do that. But... The Christmas special very clearly gives you a set of audience-friendly payoffs that are satisfying, don't get me wrong, but they feel a little bit artificial compared to what came before. I mean, especially, you know, everything is even a little bit more heightened in that special with obviously the music videos and sort of slight change of format and the fact that there's, you know, a, a, a transatlantic element as well. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I like I said, I love the Christmas specials, but I think... I, I, I'm imagining an alternate universe where they don't exist, and I think I would love the show even more. I would. I, I have two counterpoints. Um, one is I love I love Tim's speech near the end of the Christmas special when he talks about you know when you turn the cameras off, we're still going to be living our lives, and come back in ten years, I'm going to be here. And to me, that that contextualizes a lot of the show in a way that I really like, and that it, it makes me feel like the story isn't really over. And that leads into my second point, which is basically the documentary crew is so much more omnipresent here, and they're so deliberately controlling the narrative we're receiving. I can buy the idea that the people controlling this production in the fictional version decided to end the story on all those upbeat notes, and we don't really know what's going to happen after that. The same way that they nakedly manipulate Don into going back and hooking up with him for the sake of the Christmas special. If you take <laughs> them as part of the narrative, like they literally buy her a ticket and fly her back and get them in the same room as much as possible. And I sort of love the idea of these people manipulating all of the pieces into place so that we can have the audience pay off the normal sitcom would have. And that's a fun meta element to think about. Um, Simon, you're not alone in that. I've heard that from many people. I actually kind of expected Scott to to agree with you and for me to be the outlier on this one, but I absolutely agree with you, Scott. 
Um, and and the re and it's a it's not a uh, critic reason. It is not a particularly sophisticated reason. This is just such a depressing ending to the show, the season two finale. And it is, it's very honest and it's beautifully written and beautifully performed. And it's very, very true. But I don't want Dawn in an unhappy quasi marriage or fiance, you know, just lifelong fiance stuck in Florida away from her family. And I don't want Tim forever, you know, in, in slough at a job that he still hates with no friends. And and I don't want uh, uh, David Brent's heart to not have grown two sizes at the at the end of uh, the Christmas special. So just in a personally selfish, incredibly selfish place, I'm just happy that they get some happy endings and I don't care how phony maybe parts of it is. I think they do a really good job of uh, making these yes, somewhat contrived uh, happy endings come together in what feels like an authentic way, you know, very truthful to the show. And so I will give it to them. Yeah. Like I said, I I love the episodes again. It needs to be underlined. There's so many great moments, but little things like in series two, when when we meet Neil, uh, who's such a great character? It's obvious if you if you're paying attention that he's a dick, but <laughs> they don't underline it with felt tip pen, and I feel like that only happens when we get to the specials and he be and he behaves I think too overtly like an asshole so that we can have David Brent's you know big moment of redemption et cetera et cetera with with Christmas Carol um, in tow. <laughs> so st- stuff like that I don't know if I needed. Yeah, I can see that. I think by that point, as much as as much as Neil is a bully, like, and, and it, it is a bully from the beginning, I get why his frustration with David Brent would have grown to the point where he's just going to be a total dick, and he and Finch are just going to go after him. But yeah, I, I I don't disagree with anything you're saying. I think, but I, I agree. It's the emotional stuff that I just maybe maybe I'm just a sap, like Ricky Gervais clearly secretly is, as much as I'm sure he's irritated all of us at one point or another. But this is one time when I'll take my happy ending. <laughs> well, do we have any uh, particular episodes or moments that we want to spotlight aside from the finales? I don't think it's a controversial statement, unlike what I just said. Uh, the the dance, which I believe is in the Series 2 finale, um, has to be the ultimate apex of cringe humor. No one will ever do it better in terms of X, Y axis crin- cr- amount of cringing versus amount of laughter. That is the best anyone will ever do. <laughs> you mean on when he tries to follow up Neil's yeah. uh, Saturday Night Fever routine? Yeah, yeah, that is awful in such a good way. But like, you know, peeking through your fingers, awful because it's so. For all of the bad David Brent moments, it's yeah. really and, sad. And, and I prefer to think that he really meticulously choreographed that. <laughs> <laughs> so he had that in his pocket all day and was and was lying to the camera, or for years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. It does <laughs> for David Brent. You know, and when you look at something like that, it's I'm always impressed by the timing of it because it is such a delicate balance when you, when you have cringe humor of how long is long enough before people either lose interest or it's just too much and it's it's too painful and so it's not entertaining anymore. And they manage, and I've seen both sides of that um, on other shows that are going for cringe humor. Um, and, and just the way that they ride that line throughout the show, but that dance is a perfect example of it. I mean, it's just wonderful. And it really underlines that Gervais really is a gifted performer. What, whatever 
issues people may have with him now, he clearly, at least when he has a firm grasp on his character, he can do truly amazing work. Oh, it's it's a brilliant performance. And he, he won a Golden Globe for it, didn't he? Mm-hmm. If I, I remember right. Yeah. yeah. That sounds right. Okay. And richly deserved. I remember watching the Globes when he won because almost nobody in the U.S. had heard of the Office right. UK at that point. And so it was his speech was delightful. Because uh, it was very, you know, it was responding to that. But yeah, I, I never really will understand this notion that a lot of people have that Ricky Gervais isn't a particularly talented actor. Because I, I think people just assume he is David Brent because it is such a naturalistic <laughs> performance. And because so few, at least in the U.S., so few of the audience members were aware of him before this show. But you know, clearly this is a character. Clearly this is a performance. And it might be one that he does frequently in other roles but for david brent it's perfect it is the danger of being so good in a role in a role but when no one knows who you are and i will say if i have if i have any complaint about the show right now and it's not it's not the loss of the show it's what you alluded to earlier that you know these these actors have become too recognizable and i imagine it would be difficult for someone who's never seen it to pick it up and be like oh there's the hobbits like <laughs> there's ricky gervais that guy with a million twitter followers like i, I do feel like that context is something you can never get back. And I do miss that a little bit watching it again. One of the things that I found really interesting, actually, and this was something I was more aware of this time, being, again, more familiar with, with several of these actors, but in particularly in just looking at, at Tim, because, of course, I you know, love Martin Freeman uh, back when he was cast as Arthur Dent. I was like, oh, it's perfect. And then just to watch his career continue to go up since, there has been, since then has been great. I love that. Unlike in some of the other British series we've we've talked about, you there isn't a clear um, the actors are getting more the more attractive because their profile is raising between the seasons. That I feel like that happens so frequently. We were talking I talked about this a little bit with um, the IT crowd with Chris O'Dowd, where he looks distinctly less schlubby in every season, and and I love that that I mean such a little thing, but I love that even in the finale. Um, Tim has these terrible, like half grown out sideburns and his Lego hair. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, and I love that they keep that. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they really, they keep the plausibility very tight. They they never break for a moment. And it, yeah, you're right. That's rare. I hadn't thought about that, but that's it's an interesting point about other British TV. Yeah, definitely. And if we're going to talk about memorable moments, I mean, we've we've already talked about the dance. The the moment that got me hooked on the show, because I watched the first episode and I wasn't familiar with cringe humor yet. I didn't really know. I don't know how well I got it. And then the stapler in the jello mold. <laughs> and I think that moment, just the just when he puts it on the like, just the reveal of that. It was one of the funniest things I watched that year, and uh, in that moment got me to watch the rest of this the series, and I was so glad that I did. Um, but for me, I will always think of that Jello mold when I think of The Office, uh, and then I'll also think of when they tried to do that on The Office U.S., and it just made me sad. Yeah. It wasn't <laughs> yes. nearly as good. But I mean, it was curious. an insane idea to replicate the pilot beat for beat. Well, thank God. I, the whole first season was not was not a good idea. Yeah, but, yeah. You don't, you know, if you're going to remake a show, then that that's great. There's been lots of really wonderful examples of when that's worked. Remaking a fantastic pilot beat for beat is just stupid. Yeah. But uh, anyways, that 
a conversation for another time. Uh, the other episode or moment I got to mention is uh, David Brent with the guitar. Yep. That, <laughs> that for me is the one-two punch. That's the, it's all, every episode is worth watching, no question. But I love the third episode where it's Tim's 30th birthday and they do, you know, there's the blockbusters trivia round thing they do. I find that so brilliant and sad and I would kill for a hat FM. If you guys know where to buy one, let me know. <laughs> And and then that leads into the training episode, which is just oh, it's so good, and the guitar stuff in particular. But you know, the, people always talk about the Free Love Freeway, which is which is great. But when he sings the Princess Diana song to Dawn to try to tear her up, it's so <laughs> awful. Oh, it's all so like bad. a car crash in Paris. <laughs> uh, oh, I should goodness. never do accents. Um, no, that's brilliant. Yeah, apparently that's Ricky Gervais's favorite episode, for whatever it's worth. I think it's the best to encapsulate the show. Like if for some reason someone just had to watch one episode, that's it's some of the best Tim Dodd stuff. It might be Ricky Gervais's best episode. It, it totally captures the ennui. I don't know if you guys have worked in hellish office jobs at some point in your life with these awful training days. And, uh, but I have, it's, it's more or less similar to that. <laughs> I would say overall, I slightly prefer series two to series one. But yeah, that's inter- if you need it. Ent- I don't think people should really need an entry point for this show. Just start from the beginning and watch it like a good boy. But <laughs> you know, if you needed an entry point, that's probably the best you're going to get. Well, and again, it's only it's only 12 episodes and they're each a half hour. So this is, you know, and then, of course, the Christmas special, which is an hour and a half. But this is, you know, one of the most manageable series we've done on the DVD shelf as far as catching up with that. And uh, I'm curious, was I the only one who needed to turn on the subtitles the first time they watched this show? Yes. yes. I, I've heard that complaint. I just kind of hung tough. And there's still, I know I'm missing a million cultural references every time. But there, there, oh, yeah, there's still a, part of the fun, trying to there's, decipher. There's still a few gags that I, that I like, I, that one just totally goes over my head. Or talking heads where he'll rattle off like eight British celebrities. And it's like, I have no idea who any of those people are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it is a really rewatchable show for, for me. And, and some of those, I, I obviously we're referencing specific cultural you know, culture, British elements that we're not going to necessarily get as American viewers. But even just, I feel like this is a dense show because, you know, all of the background characters, much like in the American office, they're all doing something. And uh, and so watching what's going on in the background gives you a lot uh, of, of en- entertainment and enjoyment as well. So once you have a handle on the main gist, there's still plenty more to see. So I do think it's one of those shows that, re- like you said, Simon, you watch it 12 times. It, it lives up to, to a lot of rewatching. Well, and I think another thing that's important about the reason Office UK works, and I, I, I have to again reference Office US, sorry, is I feel like by the end of, especially, or even by the midway point of the Office US, you know who everyone in that office is, and you know they're all kind of wacky in one way or another. And that really is not the case on the Office UK, I feel like. I, you know, especially when the Swindon lot show up, you mostly just have a lot of normal, hardworking people showing up who just want to go about their business. <laughs> and I feel like that really changes the dynamic. And you have that wonderfully sad love story that plays out almost entirely in the background. Yes. Yeah, includes in the Christmas special, which is, it, that idea was so great. And to never go any deeper than that, where it's so easy to miss it if you're not paying attention. Oh, definitely. And just even, you know, I love the, the notion of, again, like you said, Scott, you can kind of see the the documentarians, like, deciding where they're going to go. And they're like, well, okay, there's this other story happening, but if we put this in too much, it'll distract from our Tim and Don love story. So we better just, you know, it's a really good story, but we're going to focus on this one instead. <laughs> and I, I just, I really enjoy that, that again, that meta element. Are there other parts of the show that we want to 
talk about. I've got one more thing that we haven't mentioned yet. Oh, go for it. Theme yeah, song. Oh, yes. Yeah. The, the whole intro and theme is perfect. Yep. It's so good. I love it. We've talked about it on the show before when there are particularly memorable or, or noticeable themes. If you're marathoning, it can get old. Maybe it works the first few times, but if you're going to watch six episodes in a row or 12 episodes in a row, like I have been known to do in the past, a theme song that you love can become one that you're really hoping to fast forward through pretty quickly. I will listen to the the theme song for The Office, Handbags and and Glad Rags, every single time, and then I'll listen to it again in the closing credits. I I love this theme song. Different versions. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah, David Brent sings it once. It's great. Yeah, definitely. Do you guys have any other final thoughts? I just can't even imagine the current sitcom landscape without The Office in it. I mean, you subtract The Office and then a million other dominoes fail to fall. I do think it's one thing that I'm sorry has been lost, although, you know, I guess it was necessary. But with this with this kind of talking head thing just becoming typified and understood as a trope, I miss the acknowledgement of the camera. I think it adds so much to my enjoyment of the show and the rewatchability of the show to think about some of that framing stuff we're talking about. And I don't think every show needs to do it. Like I think parks handles it just about right for parks and recreation, but I would like to see another show do the talking heads and work a little harder to build it into the fictional universe. Yeah. Just even having the characters clearly responding to, to prompts, you know, deciding how they're going to reword the prompts so that it's included in their answer. Uh, goes a long way towards the reality. And when you talk about that, that just makes me think of in the season two finale, the the new guy who comes in and is like staring at the camera the oh, whole yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> so great. Yes. Stephen Merchant's dad. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, such a great little walk on. Oh, yeah. so good stuff. It's a nearly perfect series, and that almost never happens. I'll, I'll be, I'd be, I would be curious to reconvene at some point and talk about extras, which is an interesting show. Uh, not quite as interesting as The Office, but still pretty damn interesting. And I'll, actually, I'm, I'm going to ask you, Scott, did you have you checked out Derek by any chance? Because I hear wildly. No, I just I, I know I should. It's one of those that's sitting in my queue until I can kind of psych myself into it. But there's, it is so unappealing on its face to me. I just mm-hmm. I, I think Ricky Gervais has just as as much as I love this performance, um, it's been diminishing returns every time. I've seen everything else. I've you know I've seen extras and I've seen Life's Too Short, and I, I just don't want to see another slightly disappointing variation on this. Yeah, I haven't checked it out yet. I, and like you were saying, Sam, and I've heard widely varying things from people who hate it to people who love it. So I'm kind of curious, but right now I have to watch Borgen. So I need to watch that first. Um, the The only other thing I'll mention is that, yes, this is an incredibly influential show. And it's fun to think about. You have The Office in 2001 and 2002, and then you have Arrested Development starting in 2003. And between those two shows, I feel like a lot of you know what we what we know as our single camera sitcoms kind of are crafted from the remains of of those two shows uh but while this is an incredibly influential show it's also a really good show so it's not just that it's influential it's also hilarious and it, it, it's li- it's lived on so well 10 years on 11 years on it's still absolutely fresh and compelling and entertaining and that is a rare feat wait a second guys that now begs the question the Office or Arrested Development? Oh, don't do that, Jimmy. Oh, don't do that. <laughs> Terrible. Can I say certain seasons don't exist of Arrested Development? Oh. That bring down the, the average? Or... No, you can't. Ah. 
Okay, Scott, you're first. Uh, I'll, I will reluctantly go the office, but that is, that's asking me to choose between my children, you know, it's, it's horrible. Yeah, yeah, the office is more consistent, but I have a fonder place in my heart, I think, for Arrested Development, despite its flaws and its Mm -hmm. most recent season. I think I've watched it, watched it more but the office is just a sort of untarnished gem of 14 if you can just take 14 episodes and 14 episodes the office will win but oh man i don't know it's tough simon i think i know where you fall on this one yeah i mean i think if you were to take the best you know if you were to condense all of arrested development's greatness into 14 episodes it would definitely win but you can't so i'll go the office Fair enough. Well, you're a terrible person for making us pick, Simon. <laughs> I hope you. you're proud of yourself. Well, Scott, Damn. thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Where can our listeners find you online? Sure thing. Uh, I'm the entertainment editor at theweek.com. So go to theweek.com and you can read daily coverage. Um, I also do some recapping for Vulture and for The Atlantic. And I'm on Twitter at, at Scott Meslow. Well, and again, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse.